All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, first of all, those of you looking for a YouTube video, listening to this on YouTube right now, I want to apologize because for some reason I do not have the video of this episode. It must have been a lapse on my part. I'm not sure what happened. But anyway, no worries. Video will return next week. And in this episode, I chat with screenwriter, producer, and director Gary Sherman about his days at Chess Records, Donald Pleasance, Marlon Brando, and the painful legacy of Poltergeist 3. As always, thank you all out there for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? <laughs> just about all the above <laughs> as a, a hippie <laughs> oh okay yeah that that is all of the above <laughs> yeah i mean we're talking about the 60s and 70s which was as they say if you can remember the 60s you weren't there <laughs> <laughs> whereabouts did you grow up chicago right in the thick of things so when you say you're a reader did you have a genre or maybe a specific writer that you lean towards I read a lot back then. I, you know, mainly at that time, if we go back to the 60s and start from there, art was my thing. Mm. I mean, I was an, I had, from the time I was like eight years old, I went to the Saturday school at the Chicago Art Institute in SAIC, and they had a junior school there on Saturday for kids. I started there when I was eight. From the time I was very young, I was, I knew I wanted to be an artist, and I just didn't know what my medium was going to be. You know, if I drew, I painted, I published a comic book from about the time I was about 10 years old on a ditto machine, <laughs> which was this strange contraption that you would you would write you would write out on a, on a piece of paper that had like carbon paper on the back of it and you could get different colors to slide into the to the easel so you could you draw each color it, w it was kind of like printmaking like you were doing you know wood blocks or linoleum cuts or whatever and i came up with these characters that i called the bird boys they kind of looked like cranes whooping cranes and and you know they all wore little outfits and uh and they did weird things and i drew this thing that i and we had a ditto machine at school. So what you would do is you would make the matrix, you know, the, the printing thing, which you draw each page separately. Mm -hmm. And then you'd, you'd run them through, run them through this machine and it would print on the paper until it ran out of color. You know, you could only make like maybe 25 or 30 copies. So I used to publish these like weekly or, or, 
or bi-weekly at school and just pass them out to my friends and stuff. The funny thing was is that one of my schoolmates was a guy named Nathan Herman. And Nathan and I used to write together. We, we always joke we were each other's first writing partner because Nathan went on to, uh, he became a, a writer at Saturday Night Live and he wrote for Saturday Night Live for a long time. Then he got somebody from Saturday Night Live, I don't remember who it was, one of his, uh, one of the cast went to Los Angeles and got into a sitcom and they dragged Nathan out to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> to write on the sitcom, which he really hated. But, you know, it took him out to L.A. I mean, I hadn't seen... I, I saw him... God, well, after we finished grammar school, I didn't see Nathan for a long, long time. And then I was in New York. God, what year was that? Like 84, maybe? 85? And I was shooting a pilot for NBC. And I got invited to a uh, performance of Saturday Night Live and then to the after party. So I, I, I went and saw the show and I went to the after party and lo and behold, there's Nathan Herman. And then I didn't see him for a long, long time. And then I get a call from him. I'm in LA. And I, by that time, I, you know, I was living in LA. We also used to do radio shows. He had a- Like uh, audio dramas? Yeah. Oh, I love uh, audio drama. Kind of comedies, mm. but spooky comedies. I added the spooky, he added the funny. <laughs> and we would do these things where we would we would talk and then play excerpts from records. What did he look like? It was a long island people people leader. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was my uh, first experience in show business. <laughs> so what about your parents, Gary? Were either of them artistically inclined or involved in the business at all? No. My dad, during the Depression... My dad played piano, and during the Depression, he played piano in speakeasies and stuff. And then his sister was a singer, so he started managing his sister. She got to be quite well-known in Chicago as a torch singer, and he, he was her accompanist. And uh, But she then met some guy who didn't want her in show business anymore, and left dad and that it kind of spoiled it for him for show business he didn't want anything to do with it and he ended up in the rag trade like any good jewish boy <laughs> <laughs> and he became a manufacturer and a retailer and men's clothing so by the time i i was around he it was really funny you know they, they sent me to art school they sent me for music lessons you know all of that stuff that parents do to make sure that you know that you have culture Right. <laughs> when I got into high school, I had a band. And, oh, my dad thought, you know, oh, it's fun that he has a band. But God forbid that I would go into it professionally. And we actually had one hit record, a minor hit, but a hit record. But it, it was when I was like in my freshman year of college. Everybody was going off to different colleges and, and, and the group broke up before the record was even released and the record got released, and, but we weren't a group anymore. Justin, my life has just been a series of accidents. <laughs> because, so when we, we got a record contract with a company called Quill Records and Quill Records was a, um, 
subsidiary of chess if you know anything about music yeah i have had something to ask you about that (laughs) keep going (laughs) that's records and so we recorded at chess we recorded our our um, our one record just an a side and a b side of a 45 if you ever want to hear it it's it's on apple music you can look it up what's the name of the band and song the band was the exterminators I'm writing it down. And the song was called Voodoo, V-O-O-D-O-O. What did you play in the band? I played guitar, but on the record, I had a, a really great guitarist in the group. John Pendergast was his name. So John played guitar. I was the front man. I mean, sometimes I would have a guitar and just, you know, knock out a rhythm guitar thing just to have a guitar around my neck. But basically, I was the front man. Most of the time, I was just out there, just me and a microphone, getting crazy and <laughs> getting my lungs out. I have to ask you, Gary, because uh, while we're on the subject of music, I was uh, reading your bio, and it said that you sing on a song with Eric Clapton, so we might as well just touch on that Okay, one. here's an interesting <laughs> story. I was working at chess, and I had just finished singing background on a Bo Diddley rec- record, on um, Bo Diddley's song, uh, We're Gonna Get Married. It was me and Minnie Ripperton. Minnie was about the same age as me, maybe a year younger. And so, like, I was, like, 17, and she was, like, 16 or 17. I was 17 or 18. We did a lot of sessions together. I had a five-and-a-half octave range back then. Lucky if I have an octave-and-a-half range. <laughs> back then, I had this huge range. I could do anything from falsetto to bass. I, I would, you know, do backgrounds, and I would sing. I would harmonize with myself and, you know, do all kinds of shit. And, it was, you know, back then, they... They paid you $45 for a three-hour session, but they could make you do as many parts as, you know, like today, it's it's way different. But $45 back then was a fortune. You know, I would go in, I would do six or nine hours a week, and I've been making $100, $150 a week, which was like, I put myself through school with that. We had done our record there, and Ron Malo, who was the head engineer at Chess, pulled me aside and said, you got a really great voice and you got an incredible range. He said, do you read? And I said, yeah, I read. And he said, you're interested in doing session work? <laughs> I said, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Of course I am. So he started calling me in for sessions and I got pretty friendly with two of the A&R guys there, Esmond Edwards, who produced lots and lots and lots of great music. And well, three guys actually, Billy Davis Jr. who, who wrote the song Money, he didn't have to work again, but <laughs> actually, Billy's a really interesting story, but that's uh, probably for another day. <laughs> he went on to be, have an incredibly successful life. And Gene Barge, who was the head of gospel there, who was Daddy G, saxophone player. You know, if you remember the U.S. Gary Bond song, we danced till the quarter yeah. three, yeah. and with the hip is band, and, and Daddy G. So Gene and I are still friends. Gene's like 90 years old now, and he's he's just fucking incredible. I, I see him every once in a while. I don't see him as much as I used to. So I'm not in Chicago as much as I used to be, but he's amazing. He still blows sacks every once in a while at Buddy Guy's Club. I mean, you know, Buddy was just a session musician back then, too, at chess. I mean, then, then he got into his own stuff. It was amazing, chess. The people we were surrounded by, Muddy Waters and Holland Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson, just surrounded by all this greatness. 
still to today, Corky Siegel is one of my closest friends. Are you still yeah. in Chicago? I, I live in Chicago part of the year, yeah. Okay. Basically, I got married 20 years ago. God, it feels like <laughs> yesterday. But I moved back to Chicago about 22 years ago to retire, which I never did. Just came back to spend time with my dad, who was really getting on, and my dad and I were pretty close, so I wanted to spend as much time with him as I could, so I moved back to Chicago and got a few years with him before he left us. So, yeah, he lived to 102, so I was pretty lucky to have wow, him. Wow, yeah. My dad was quite a guy. But anyway, so, yeah, so Corky, but even when I wasn't in Chicago, I mean, Corky would come visit me in Los Angeles. Actually, Corky says that I'm his best groupie. I've seen him (laughs) in more cities than any other single person other than Holly, his wife. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, those years of chess. So getting, I I got off your question. Hey, it's fine. (laughs) I had just finished a session with Bo Diddley. And also, Bo Diddley's how I started making films, so that, that's another place to go. So uh, we finished the session, Bo left, and Ron Malo says to me, you want to meet Eric Clapton? I went, I mean, I'm like 17 years old, and I mean, Clapton was like God. Yeah. He was with the Yardbirds then. So I said, oh my God, yeah. Anyways, he says, well, they, they came in, they cut all their instrumentals last night, and they're coming in to do some some vocals and overdubs. So here, he hands me a broom. <laughs> he says, here, go sweep up the studio, pretend you're working, and so that you won't look too obvious when he gets here. So anyway, so this long-haired British musician comes walking in and and uh, with his manager, and, and they're talking to Ron. Ron calls me over and says, yeah, this is Gary Sherman. He works here, and uh, he wanted to meet you, and ba-boom, and... But he didn't tell him anything else. And he just, you know, sort of chatting. And, and he introduces him as Eric Clapton. He says to uh, Ron, he says, nobody else wanted to come. So I got to do everything myself. He says, you don't happen to have a studio guy around here who could do some harmonies with me. And he said, well, the guy with the broom is actually probably one of our best background musicians, you know, doo-wah singers. And he says, really? And he says, and he looks at me, he says, you read? I said, yeah. He hands me a sheet and says, you know, let's try this. So I said, hey, okay. So we go in the booth and it's Shapes of Things, the Yardbird song Shapes of Things. He says, wow. what you need to do is sing Come Tomorrow. And so it's, and whenever you get to Come Tomorrow, you just come in and, and we'll, we'll harmonize on Come Tomorrow. So anyways, I'm singing with him and we do the session and he's really happy with the session. I get paid for the session. And for years and years and years and years, I did interviews and said, yeah, I sang with Eric Clapton on Shapes of Things. Well, I'm doing an interview with a rock and roll station. God, I can't remember her name. She's a well-known disc jockey in New York. She says, I got a surprise for you. I said, what's that? She said, I interviewed Marshall Chess last week, and I told him that I was interviewing you because of the Eric Clapton thing. And she says, Marshall starts laughing. And she said, what are you laughing about? He says, that wasn't Eric Clapton. It was Jeff Beck. <laughs> Clapton had left the Yardbirds two weeks before, and Ron Malo, who was, you know, like the god of recording art, you know, recording engineers at that time, he thought it was Eric Clapton. And so nobody wanted to correct him because he was Ron Malo. Not like Jeff Beck is a slouch. 
but <laughs> Jeff didn't want to insult Ron and tell him, no, I'm not, I'm not Eric Clapton. I'm, so Jeff went along with it. You know, fuck. I, you know, back then you didn't get as much video. You didn't get any video, basically. So I didn't know what Eric Clapton looked like, or he and Jeff didn't back then didn't look that much different they just had a lot of hair they were british and so if i'm told it's eric clapton so actually the truth is i sang with jeff beck not eric clapton not bad i was always a jeff beck fan i mean i I think for me i mean jeff beck is up there as one of the greatest guitar players ever i mean yeah Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. No, Hendrix was amazing. I actually got to see Hendrix several times. I have a t-shirt actually that says, I may be old, but I got to see all the cool bands. <laughs> when Gary, when you think about the formative films and TV shows from your childhood, what comes to mind? Are you a Twilight Zone kid, like most people I talk oh, to? Oh, I was a Twilight Zone <laughs> nut. I mean, I've seen every episode of Twilight Zone. <laughs> Every episode of Twilight Zone and Leave It to Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very wide range. Yeah, you got to mix it up. Yeah, and then I mean, as I got older, I mean, there's other shows that have really been that I just think are the the great shows. Twilight Zone and um, One Step Beyond. The ones that were taking control of your television. My dad had to have whatever was newest, so we were one of the first families in our neighborhood to have a television and we were definitely the first family in the neighborhood to have a color television years later but i remember our first television with its round screen a little round <laughs> screen, and we watched like milton burrell i'm so glad that i grew up in the analog age i love digital i've had a computer since my first computer was an ibm 50 it had 50 megabytes <laughs> <laughs> So I've been into computers for a long time, and I love it. But the fact that I grew up in shooting films on 35 and and doing everything analog has been a big, big part of my life, translating analog into digital. This is something I like to ask everyone, Gary, just because you never know. uh, What scared you as a kid? The House of Wax. Vincent Price in Mm. 3D. I was like, I don't know. 52, 53, so I was like seven or eight years old. And my brother, I have a, my brother was like six years older than me, five and a half years older than me. And he had to take care of me one afternoon and took me to see the House of Wax. We lived in Miami Beach then. And he, I remember we went on Lincoln Road to the Capri Theater. I just remember the whole thing like it was yesterday. And I was scared out of my fucking mind. <laughs> it's what really hooked me on horror movies. And then, I mean, in, in real life, the thing that scared me the most was a murder in Chicago. Three young boys, and, and that was about 1955. So I was like 10 or 11 years old. Three boys about my age went missing. They had gone down to downtown Chicago to see a movie. They lived out in the west side, and they were never seen again. And about four, there was a manhunt for four days that was just unbelievable. And then their bodies were found naked and mutilated. Forest preserve on the west side of Chicago. And the the Chicago Sun-Times published a photograph of the three bodies taken from a distance and they were just white shapes draped in this in this ditch and it fucking freaked me out is that still unsolved no it was solved in 
the late 90s. It okay. took 40 years for the crime to be solved. And it's, it's a really interesting story. I actually bought the rights to the story when it broke, myself and a, and a producer. We got the rights of the, it was an ATF agent who solved the crime. And we went to him, he lived, he, li he still lived in the Chicago area. And we drove out there and we bought his rights. And the trial was over, the guy had been convicted Hansen was the guy who was the killer. What happened was we actually made a deal with HBO. Um, we're supposed to do the do the show. He filed for a retrial, and we got shut down because of that. And then he, four years later, five years later, he died in prison before he ever went back to trial. You know, a show goes down. Yeah, yeah. Interested afterwards, and and I was already doing other stuff. And I mean, what happened was just horrendous. The guy wasn't a serial killer. He was paid to kill them. The three kids on their way home walked past something that had to do with gangsters they shouldn't have seen. And his boss said, take him out, make it look like it was a, a sex crime. That's really what got me obsessed by serial killers. I was a very, I was quite a child prodigy. And so I started reading books about serial killers and I was reading university level books about serial killers when I was like 11 or 12 years old. I got to the point that I was like a an expert in serial killers and continued that into my adulthood. And so I've written several movies about serial killers and, and I just got into that whole mentality or understood the mentality of serial killers. But I used to wake up as a kid, I'd wake up my, and my brother would cultivate it, uh, make me scream in the middle of the night. He'd scare the shit out of me and sneak into my room. And, and he said, I'm the guy that killed the piece to Peterson Schusler kids. And I'd be screaming in the middle of the night. We lived, at, we lived in a high-rise building and I kept thinking people were trying to climb in the windows. <laughs> Let's skip to 1972. You've got Deathline, starring the late, great Donald Pleasance. So how do you get Donald on board, and what are some of your memories you have of him? I love Donald Pleasance. I mean, I loved him then. I still love him, even though he's gone. <laughs> he had the greatest influence on, on my career as a director of almost anybody. When I sat down with Kerry Jones to write Deathline, I had a very successful career as a commercials director at that time, and, and Jonathan Demme was my producer and my best friend. And Jonathan kept saying to me, you should be directing movies. I said, I, I'm quite happy directing commercials. I don't need to direct movies. He says, no, no, no. You should be directing, you should be directing movies. And, and at that time, almost every commercials director in London was directing feature films. Everybody from, from Ridley Scott, Richard Lester, <laughs> my idol. So I said, you know, well, I, I, okay, I'll write something. So Jonathan and I sat down and wrote a few scripts together. But, you know, he and I were both expats from the United States who had run away from the States in 1968 you know, at the convention in Chicago. And I was very political. I still am. A bit of a Marxist. <laughs> I lean so far to the left that I kind of fall over sometimes. <laughs> Anyhow, so we were writing these scripts and everybody would look at these scripts and I mean, we were preaching to the converted. You know, they, they were like student movies. They were like student films because they were just so preachy and Anyhow, a friend of mine 
a guy you might have heard of, Ray Davies. <laughs> Ray and my friend David Chaston, and David worked with our company. David was an art director and, and worked with Jonathan and I in our company. Anyways, we're sitting around talk, you know, chatting with Ray one day, and Ray said, you know what, I'd like to be in a movie. So he said, hey, you know what? And I, Carrie Jones was at that lunch too. And Carrie and I looked at him and said, we could write you a movie. Then you'll have your own script. And, <laughs> so, and he was as political as we were. We came up with this idea and we wrote a script called Turned Over, which was about a guy who was an anti-establishment guy who used to make his living stealing things. If you wanted something, you'd tell him what you wanted and he'd go and steal it for you <laughs> and give it to you for like 25% of the price. Whatever it was, he'd steal cars, he'd steal coats, he'd steal whatever you needed. But then he gets involved with a mobster. Anyways, the, the thing was really taking advantage of the working class is what the piece was about. So we write this piece for Ray. I take it to John Daly at the Hemdale Company. John Daly and David Hemmings had this company. They did blow up, they did, you know, they did they did some good movies. And I knew John socially. You know, we used to hang out on King's Road. So I made a lot of money back then. So I knew a lot of people. <laughs> I hung out with that crowd, you know. John says, I love this, uh, you know, and with Ray Davies, we'll make this movie. So Hemdale made a deal with us and the 11th hour, Ray dropped out because his brother, Dave, said, hey, you're either a rock and roll star or you're a movie star, you can't be both. We got a tour schedule that's like back to back. This is our chance to really do it. You know, I mean, they were, uh, the kinks were at their height at that point. So at the 11th hour, Ray dropped out of the project. And we went back to John and said, Ray's not going to do it. And he said, then neither am I. And we said, well, we could, you know, we'll find somebody else. And he says, the only reason I was making this script was because Ray Davies wanted to make the script. I'm not that interested in the movie. I was interested in putting Ray Davies in a movie. He says, I love the way you and Carrie write. Your writing is really fucking good. And with Jonathan behind you guys, it was really great. And I loved working with you, but I'm sorry. And he looks at me and he says, write a fucking horror movie. And with you and Carrie and, you know, I'll make it. So I started thinking about it. In the meantime, I am an avid researcher. You talk about reading. I... I I read a lot of nonfiction. Mm. I'd say I, I read three times as much nonfiction as I do fiction. And I love researching shit. And I used to ride the tube a lot. So I got interested in, you know, the fact that the tube was the first underground railway that was ever built. I'd done a lot of research about the tube and I found out, I mean, you talk about taking advantage of the of the working class. I mean, what they did, it, it was almost slave labor that built the London Underground. They were importing these people they called navvies from Wales and Scotland and Ireland, and they were all miners, and they just brought them to London and treated them absolutely like shit and took real advantage of them and killed a lot of them. And I thought, you know, I could really do a polemic based on that, which nobody would realize what I was doing and hiding it inside a horror movie. And so Carrie, who is as political as I was, the two of us started talking about it. And one night, literally one night, I sat down, I was, it was a night I couldn't sleep. And I had a friend of mine in from New York who was staying at our house. 
with me and my wife. I sat down and wrote the story about this cave-in that happens in the 1800s, and some of them survive, and it was better down there than it was up above for them, and there were children, and then came up with the idea for Deathline that they still are down there, and they're still eating people. But it was all about, you know, and I created the, the Stratton Villiers character and the, the Manford character to represent different parts of the upper class of British society, and, and this cop who was halfway, but who wanted to be part of the upper class, but was, you know, had too much cockney in his accent to ever get there, <laughs> and was bitter about it, and hated the whole world, and then created our hero, who was the man. I wrote that. I give it to Jonathan. Carrie and I wrote it while we were doing a commercial. We were on location doing a Procter & Gamble commercial for a deodorant, um, and it was a three-week location. That's when you had budgets that were fucking through the ceiling. <laughs> Actually, the commercial had almost four times the budget that the movie had when we finally did make the movie. So anyways, Carrie and I wrote this. Carrie was the agency producer. He basically, you know, he spent most of his time in advertising agency, half his time at the agency and half his time with our production company. I, the first person I gave it to to read was to, to read it was Jonathan. Jonathan reads it and says, man, this is fucking great. I love this script. I said, well, I'm going to give it to John Daly. And he says, no, 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 wait a minute. Before you give it to John Daly, A, he said, you know, you're really close with the people at Fox here. Because the guy who was the head of production at Fox was David Compton Bennett, who was Compton Bennett's son, the guy who did, you know, the Foresight Saga and the Seven Veil. And David and I had become really good friends. Actually, David, I mean, I was in my early 20s. David was in his 50s. And David and his wife had never had kids and had kind of adopted Carol, my wife and I. And we had just had a baby, Melissa. He just decided Melissa was his grandchild and they kind of adopted us. So David wanted to read it and he said, oh, we'll make it at Fox. And Well, I ended up, I gave it to David and we gave it to Daly. And so Daly wanted to do the Fox deal. In the meantime, Jonathan gives it to Paul Mislansky, who's in town because he had just produced a movie for Jay Cantor and Ellen Ladd Jr. I meet with Daly, I meet with David's people at Fox, and everybody wants to do it as a big budget movie and build all the sets. And, and I said, wait a minute, when I was, when I came up with the idea for this, Louis Mora Farrell, who was my production manager at, at my company, Louis had gotten us into the old abandoned tunnels in London. And he and I had toured the tunnels while Carrie and I were writing the script. Because, I mean, like I said, I, I research and I research and I research. So I was doing all that research and, and that's what we, uh, we really wanted to do. And I said, no, I want to shoot the whole thing on location. I also can't afford to do a big budget movie because 1,000 to 1,500 pounds a day shooting commercials, depending on what I'm shooting. And I said, I'm not going to make that in a movie. So I want to shoot this film in three weeks. I'm going to put an A-list crew together because everybody that shoots commercials with me will take three weeks off to do a movie, which is how I got it, you know, an Academy <laughs> Award winning DP on the film and in the guise of Alex Thompson and Colin Corby, who was the best operator in England, and David Cadwallader, who was the best dolly grip ever. He still is. He, David, to today, works for Marvel 
and he's the one who oversees all their fancy shots. And John Golding, who was fucking one of the most amazing focus pullers I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I just had a crew that was just fantastic. But we said, we have to do it in three weeks. And we couldn't get the schedule down to three weeks, so we just shot seven days a week. 20 shooting days in three weeks. And everybody just, you know, jumped in there. Well, basically, I jumped ahead of myself because Jay and Laddie were the only ones who would agree to do the film the way that we wanted to do it. And and they excitedly wanted to do that. And I said, I, I want to make this film for pennies because the only way that it's worthwhile for me to make a feature film is to make a feature film that's going to be successful. The worst thing that would happen for me is if I made Deathline as a huge budget film and it failed my commercial career. You know, I mean, I'm thinking as an artist too, but I also, hey, I'm an old Jew, you know. <laughs> well, I was a young Jew then. You got to make a book, you know. You know, I had to take the economics into consideration. In the meantime, when, to answer your question about Donald, when Carrie and I wrote the script, we wrote it with Donald in mind because we wrote two scripts. Mm -hmm. We wrote the, the underground script, which basically was me, and the overground script, which was Carrie. And we decided the, everything upstairs was going to be comedy and everything down below was going to be real horror. And we could make the horror more horrible than anybody had ever attempted to in a movie because whenever it got too overwhelming, we'd pop upstairs and we'd have Donald and he'd open with a joke. <laughs> and Carrie and I had heard that Donald Pleasance was ready to kill to do a comedy. So we wrote it with Donald in mind and then figured we'd get a, a really good comic actor to play the sergeant. So Jay Cantor is my executive producer. Well, Jay Cantor was, you know, like the most famous agent in Hollywood before he, he got into production. Jay Cantor discovered and created the careers of Marlon Brando, Dre Hepburn, Grace Kelly, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and he represented everybody who was anybody. Jay was orphaned when he was a teenager. And he lived in Chicago, actually, 20 years older than me. I mean, I didn't know Jay in Chicago. I mean, he, was, he, was, he had left Chicago before I was born. He came to live with his only living relative, who was a judge in Los Angeles. And his judge, the judge, best friend was Lou Wasserman and Jewel Stein were his buddies. They were neighbors and, you know, his, his uncle was quite wealthy and had done quite well as a lawyer and then became a judge. So they were all buddies. You know, they belonged to the same Jewish country club. And <laughs> anyway, so Jay comes to live with his uncle. World War II breaks out. Jay just, I'm going to join the army here. I'm going to, you know, and go kill Nazis and his uncle signed off on him, and when Jay was 16 or 17 years old, he joined the Navy and went off to war. And then he comes home having not finished high school or anything, and his uncle says to Lou Wasserman, can you give my, my nephew a job? He says, you know what, I need a new office boy, and I like your nephew. He's a nice young kid and served the there country. You go. <laughs> so Lou Wasserman hired Jay Cantor as his office boy. And then he was going to train him and get him to do whatever, but he, he was his office boy. So one day, Lou Wasserman says to his office boy, Jay, I got a guy coming in who's a Broadway star who we're going to make into a movie star. He's taking the train because he doesn't like to fly. And he's going to be here tonight at Union Station. You, you go and pick him up 
and take him to the Beverly Hills Hotel where we've got a bungalow for him because he's very private. So Jay goes and picks up this guy from New York. They're the same age and they start bullshitting with each other and they're really getting on like like a house on fire. And Jay takes him to the Beverly Hills Hotel and they don't have a bungalow for him. And Jay says, you, you just sit here at home. He says, you know, Lou Wasserman won't let this happen. So Jay goes and says, and they end up giving, it's Marlon, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they give him the presidential suite. And so Jay says, I'm sorry about the mix-up. He said, Lou Wasserman got it all sorted out, and you can't be in a bungalow, but you've got a whole floor to yourself because you're in the presidential suite. And he says, hey, fuck you. Lou Wasserman didn't do that. You did that. <laughs> he, said, I, 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 he said, I sneaked in. I listened to you. He said, you did a good fucking job. So anyway, so Jay takes him upstairs, gets him settled in, and says, okay, I'm going to pick you up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, get a good night's sleep. And he says, wait a minute. He says, I don't know anybody in this goddamn city. Well, why don't you call some friends and let's all go out and party tonight. Let's know some girls and da-dump and let's, let's just go have a good time. So Jay calls some friends and they go out and they hit all the clubs and, and you know, and it's all on MCA. <laughs> and they have a great time. They get back really late. There's a whole bunch of people in the suite because everybody comes back and finally Jay gets everybody out of there because he wants Marlon to get to sleep so that he won't be late for the meeting at MCA in the morning. And then Jay figures, you know, it's like a four-bedroom suite or something. He says, so he, he gets Marlon to go to bed and he sleeps in one of the other bedrooms. Gets him up in the morning, makes sure he's dressed, gets some breakfast and, and drives him back over to MCA, which was in the Lytton Industry, the buildings that are now the Lytton Industry buildings. And, oh, I've heard this story from Jay, and I've heard it from other people. Man, that's a, that's a, mean, that's a story. Jay's been my mentor. Jay, I love Jay Cantor. He's, he's my other dad. And I, I talk to Jay all the time. In fact, I'm going to call him tomorrow cause just to say hi. We talk all the time. First thing I do when I get to Los Angeles is go to Jay's and have lunch with him. He's been my career. I can't tell you how many times Jay has saved my ass. <laughs> so anyways, Jay gets him up in the morning, takes him and takes him there. And there's everybody at MCA, you know. George Chasen and Arthur Park and Herman Citron and everybody who's anybody in the agency business in in Los Angeles, Jerry Gershwin, you know, the junior agents, Jerry Gershwin and, and Elliot Kastner were junior agents there. So, you know, everybody's there and they sit them around the table and Jay, of course, is shuffled off to go sort papers in, in the office. So, or the mail room or whatever. <laughs> so now, Lou brings Marlon back to his office and says, okay, Marlon, you've met everybody. Who would you like to be your personal agent? And Marlon says, Jay. And Lou looks at him and says, Jay who? He says, Jay, the kid that picked me up at the train station last night. He said, he's not an agent. He's my office boy. And Marlon looks at him and says, he's an agent now. (laughs) And so Lou says, wait a minute, I'll be right back. He goes out and he basically throws Jay against the wall and says, what the fuck did you say to this guy? He said, what do you mean? I, I picked him up. I took care of him. I got him here on time. And he says, he wants you to be his agent. And Jay says to Lou, he says, I'm not an agent. I'm your office boy. <laughs> and Lou says, according to Marlon, you're an agent now. And 
they actually, he said, I'm going to let you try. Jay became Marlowe's <clears throat> agent. Jay became the number one agent at MCA. When the Sherman Antitrust Act broke up MCA because, you know, they bought Universal, the government said you can't be a studio and an agency. So they closed the agency and just became Universal. And Lou wanted Jay to come with him to Universal and be a producer. And Jay said, no. He says, look, he says, I got Marlon. I got Audrey. I got Grace. I got Sydney, this young actor, Sydney Poir. And then he had brought the, he, he, he also was representing, well, he represented lots of people. His client list was unbelievable. He said, so I'm going to go open my own agency. So Jay did that for a little while. Audrey retired. You know, she, she wanted to do charity work. Grace married the prince. Jay actually stood up at the wedding and his wife, Kit. Kit was the maid of honor and Jay was an usher at the wedding. Everybody was off on their own thing and Marlon didn't need an agent anymore. Marlon up with Norman Geary, who, who became his lawyer and, 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 and Jay said, if you need to talk about something, I'll talk to you about it. And then Lou Wasserman calls him and says, okay, you ready to be a producer now? And Jay says, yeah, well, if you can make me as big a producer as I was an agent, I'll, I'll take the job. And he said, we're opening Universal International in London. I know you and Kit have always wanted to live in London. How would you like to be president of Universal International? And Jay said, it's a deal. And Jay went off to be president of, U of Universal International. He made Fahrenheit 451 was the first picture he made there. Truffaut's first English language picture. He made Reflections in a Golden Eye with Marlon and Elizabeth Taylor, the only time they've been on screen together. The Countess from Hong Kong with uh, Sophia Loren that Charlie Chaplin came out of retirement. Alan Ladd Jr. was in London running IFA office in London and Elliot Kastner was there uh, working for a different agency. And the three of them said, you know what? Why don't we open our own production company? And they opened KLK Productions. And the first picture they did was where Eagles Dare. That wasn't too shabby. Then they did The Nightcomers with Marlon, Michael Winter directing. They were, you know, doing a few pictures. And that's when I met Jay. And they wanted to make Deathline. Not to keep you all evening here, Gary, but uh, this is something I like to ask everyone. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? I just wrote that story. Really? Yeah. On, what is it, July 28th, I think it is. We are having a launch of a book that is a compilation of short stories called Haunted Reels, which David Lawson from Rustic Films put the thing together. He put like 20-some pretty well-known horror directors in, of all ages, me being the oldest. <laughs> There's people in their 20s to my age <laughs> who all wrote stories for this book, including uh, Cargill. And he just starts digging at me. And I said... I had an experience in my life that scared the fuck out of me, and I've always wanted to write it. And I just, every time I start, I get scared away from it because it really frightens me. And it is hard to frighten me. I'm used to fear. I understand fear, and that's why I write horror, because I really understand what I'm afraid of. And this story was something, trying to give it to you in a, in a sentence. So he actually talked me into thinking about writing this thing. When, anyways, when when 
David Lawson came up with the idea of us doing this book together. We have a group of us that meet every Thursday night. I already gave you the name of two people. We're not supposed to talk about who's, but now it's it's coming out who's in this group because of the book. But it, it is a group of, of all directors and, and writers from, from horror. And we get together every Thursday night on a Zoom call because we all used to meet at film festivals and then COVID <laughs> stopped film festivals. And then when COVID went away and there's film festivals again, we've all been having so much fun. We call it Thursday night's therapy. We, we still doing it. We actually had, had close to 30 people on the call uh, this Thursday night. We just have the best fucking time. <laughs> we really do. We have the best fucking time. And we have no journalists in the group. We talk about stuff that we don't want to get out. And we're Understood. very honest about everything. And we review other people's movies and, and, our, and each other's. And I mean, we really, it's no holds barred. Andrea was begging me if she could come to just one meeting. Rue Morgue, Andrea? Rue Morgue. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> She said, I would just die to talk to the people that you have in this meeting. And I, so I ran it I ran it up the flagpole and it got, <laughs> and I had to call her up and say, Andrea, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you can't come. <laughs> Justin, you can't come. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't going to ask after that. If, if Andrea can't get the pass, I know I'm not getting the pass. <laughs> no, we have no, no journalists, anybody. It's it's only writers and directors and I spoke with Ernest Dickerson and he uh, worked with Rutger Hauer on his film Surviving the Game. He right. mentioned being warned by his agent about Rutger and how he could potentially be difficult to work with at times. But Ernest did not end up having a bad experience. I wanted to ask you if you had a similar warning about Rutger and what was your experience on Dead or Alive? My experience with Rutger was great. Yeah, oh, good. It's good Except to hear. Except for the fact that I didn't want him on the movie. <laughs> But once I got to work, I mean, I loved working. It was an honor and a pleasure. I mean, Riker and I became great friends. He he had rented a house in Los Angeles just about three blocks away from my house. We were both in Beverly Glen Canyon. And so we used to cook together. He'd ride up to my house on his motorcycle. <laughs> we had a great time. And he was he was seeing Whoopi Goldberg at the time. Well, they did. They had a little, he was married and, and his wife was in, in the Netherlands. I'm trying to be a flag here too. Doo -doo. So I used to hang it. We, we all hung out together and we had a great time. But the, the hardest moment I had with Rutger was that scene where after the boat gets blown up. Do you know the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the boat gets blown up and he gets in his car and Robert Guillaume is in the back seat and he's crying because... You know, Rutger, well, Rutger had to cry during the scene. Rutger takes me aside before the scene. He says, Gary, I never cry in real life. How do you expect me to cry on screen? I said, well, we're going to have to talk about this. So the two of us went off, off from the set. And we sat down against this chain link fence in the middle of the port there. And I just talked with him and he really listened. And he just, by the time we finished talking, he was crying. He said, I think I got it. And, you know, he, he was great. I mean, I, I had a great time with Rutger. I'll tell you, the, the biggest problem with Rutger is that he demands perfection from himself and from everybody around him. And if you're willing and you want the same kind of perfection that he wants, you'll get on like you, know, you would have. I mean, uh, 
You know, one one of the worst things about being a celebrity or whatever is that you know other celebrities and you get to be friends with other celebrities. And what happens is that you hear about your friends dying, not from a close friend. In the news or, yeah. And I mean, this has happened to me over and over and over again. I, I can't even start to enumerate the number of times that either I've been with somebody who heard their friend died on the radio and I was there when they heard it or or, or it happened to myself. I had a girlfriend who was best friends with Natalie Wood and she and I were driving to see her father who had just had a stroke when we heard on the radio that Natalie Wood had died. And I mean, that was the worst days of my life. And, but other people, well, the worst day of my life was when Heather died. Yeah. But that one I didn't hear on the, on the news. I mean, I heard it within an hour of it happening and it was her agent who called me. But I mean, over and over again, I mean, I mentioned Minnie Ripperton before. I, I was in my apartment. I, had an, I lived in Brentwood with my wife and, and daughter, and then my wife and I separated, one of my many <laughs> separations. So I was in my, I, I had gotten this uh, condo in, in Hollywood, and I was there, and I was, I was having a dinner party that night, and I was cooking. I love to cook. So I was cooking for a dinner party, when, uh, and I'm listening to the radio, and, you know, rock music station and suddenly the disc jockey comes in and says god he said you're not gonna believe this but minnie ripperton just died at cedar sinai hospital i knew she was sick i mean because minnie and i had remained friends she and her husband you know and she had just had a had maya and so i knew maya as a baby so anyways i mean i and then they played loving you and i cried like a baby i mean and, and jack albertson I had dinner with Jack the night that he died. He and, and, and his wife and, and my production, my producer and I, had, had we had just finished Dead and Buried. We had just done the ADR that afternoon. Then we said we were going to take them to dinner. So we took them out to dinner and we had a really nice time. And then I wake up the next morning and I hear on the radio, Jack Albertson was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital and he passed. And, eight o'clock this morning well i would the only point i was getting to and i'm being very long-winded today i guess you're fine gary arthur sarkissian called me and arthur said gary i got really bad news you know and arthur was my producer on wanted dead or alive and arthur called and said i just got a call from a mutual friend in london that rutger just passed away and it was the same with with christopher paul maslansky called me to tell me that christopher passed away those were lucky ones. There have been too many others. I mean, I have found out about when they did the memorial one at, at the Oscars. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the annual farewell thing they do at the Oscars. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, people flash in front of me that I can't fucking believe that they died and I didn't hear about it. Yeah. Just to ask you this briefly, Gary, like I said, I'm not going to keep you much longer. Uh, you did mention Heather, and I just wanted to ask, Correct me if I'm wrong, please, because I don't want to put anything wrong out there. Um, you wanted to stop production after Heather passed. What was the studio's response? Obviously, you made the movie, but did they just tell you, you know, screw yourself, or how did that go? Jay and Laddie were in total agreement with me. You know, at the time, Laddie was chairman, and Jay was president of Fox, or, well, some titles like that. They were the top two people, other than Kokorian, who owned, I mean, Fox, 
uh, of uh, MGM, and uh, they had been at Fox, and then they moved to MGM. You know, Kikorian was the owner, but they were running MGM, and Laddie, who thankfully Laddie was uh, somebody else who David Ladd called me when Laddie passed away. I was in Chicago. We were getting ready to shoot the new ending of the movie. I had shot an ending. They they had asked me. The, the original ending that I wrote for the movie was very expensive, very expensive and long. MGM was having financial problems under Kokorian's ownership. So Laddie had said to me, can we shoot an alternate ending that won't cost what that other ending is going to cost? And da, da, da. So when we finished production and when we were finishing the movie in production in Chicago, we shot an ending that was awful. It was it was kind of like the ending that we wanted to shoot, but it was like a low-budget version of it, and it just fucking didn't work. We previewed it, and the reaction from the audience was as bad as my reaction. I mean, I, I didn't want to shoot that ending. I don't think Jay or Laddie wanted to shoot that ending either, but the board said they, they just cut our budget and said, you can't spend that, that money. So anyways, when we were getting ready to shoot the ending that we wanted to shoot at that point. So when she died, I, I, I was in Chicago getting ready to shoot that ending, the new ending, and or the old ending. And, you know, and Jay and Laddie said to me, you, get, you better come to Los Angeles and we should figure this out now. So because, I mean, Heather was the whole, Heather and Zelda right. were the whole new, en you know, the whole old ending, the original ending. Anyways, I got on a plane, I flew to Los Angeles, we sat down in Laddie's office with Laddie and Jay and Barry Bernardi, who was, you know, my producer, and, and Dick Berger, who was executive vice president, head of production for MGM. And we sat down in, in Laddie's office and said, and Laddie said, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I want to just not finish the film. And Laddie said, you know what, I feel exactly the same way. He said, I'm not going to be able to watch a film with a dead 11-year-old in it. He said it would give me nightmares every time I'd even think about it. He said that little girl was so wonderful and Ben Laddie loved kids, just loved kids. He was a great dad to his own kids and, and Jay the same. Jay had seven kids, so it was tough. And I just said, I, I, I can't I can't go into the cutting room and look at her. Right. I absolutely adored that little girl. I, I one time my girlfriend at the time and I thought about killing her parents so that we could adopt her. <laughs> <laughs> joke. It's a joke. <laughs> so were you guys just ultimately overruled? Yeah, we were overruled yeah. by the board of directors. They said, Hey, we got millions and millions of dollars tied up in this thing. You're not gonna fucking walk away. And the, and the, I mean, they, they actually had gone to the insurance company and tried to get insurance to cover it, at which point we were just either going to reshoot the whole movie with another Carol Ann or, or just walk away from it. And the insurance company turned us down. They said, no, you've got enough footage here. You finished the film once, so go with the old ending. We're not, we're not, you know, and I said, I'm not going with the old ending. So when they forced us, Laddie, and Jay just said to me, write an ending that we can shoot for X number of dollars. And I said, I don't really want to do this. And they said, neither do we, but let's do it. Just And let's just throw the film. He said, the, we're, the film's not going to be successful anyways. Nobody's going to want to go see it. And Zelda, Tom, Skerritt, 
Zelda Rubenstein, Tom Skerritt, Nancy Allen, all of us, and, and I said it and Barry Bernardi said it, we all told MGM if they released the film, none of us are going to do publicity, which none of us did. Right. There was no publicity tour. We knew the film was just going to go out. And, and the ending we were supposed to shoot was going to run about 18, 17 or 18 minutes. And the ending that we shot ran like three minutes. And so the film was like 15 minutes short. And so I had to stretch the film in order to make it. I put scenes in that I never had any intention of going in. I, I, I shoot in a funny way sometimes. I, I like to sh I, I like write a page that's never going to go in the movie that's the first part of a scene. And I write a page at the end. And then I, because I, I, I like stuff to be really tight. So I shoot the scene like two pages longer than any scene is and then chop those two pages off when I'm in the cutting room. Oh, okay, I and gotcha. I can really make my decision on when one scene transitions into the next. I had to use stuff that I never had any intention of using in that film. That's why the pacing sucks. And I'm really proud of the special effects. I hate everything else about the movie. And you guys made the best you could out of absolute terrible situation. You know, your hands were tied. You just kind of just had to get it done. Yep, 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 yep. Gary, I've kept you way too long here. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Just to put a bow on everything, just tell folks what's on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble. Well, we're about to launch. I'm, I'm, I'm launching in two books. I mean, the writer's strike has changed my whole <laughs> yeah, mm. everything. I had a series ready to go that we were hoping was ready to go, and that may never happen now. Maybe it will. We we're actually preparing a series based on Deathline. Wow. That we were supposed to shoot in London, co-produced with, with Mammoth Productions, which is a company I was really proud to get a chance to work with. Mammoth Screen. You know, Damien Timmers, who is one of the great British executive producers, was going to be on the show. But anyways, we, that, we'll see what happens when and if the strike is ever over. I am also was about to start a screenplay from the short story that's being published in in uh, Haunted Reels, the the anthology of short stories that we're launching at Fantasia. That may happen. Um, there's several people that want to make that into a movie and want me to direct it, but we'll see. I haven't wanted to direct in a long time, but this is a story that's so personal to me. I guess I never really answered your question about what that event was. The supernatural event? Yeah, you didn't. I didn't want to push you because I figured it was part of the book. But if you want to share, it is. You can read it. Okay. Why <laughs> haunted reels? And let me tell you that that story, although fictionalized at this point, the up to the point. I'll just tell everybody so this way you'll have to read it. When uh, up to the point when the baby screams, everything in that in that story is real, and everything that. The main things that happened, the death of the two people, the two people who died after the baby screamed actually happened. A lot of the rest of it is, is fictionalized and I fictionalized myself and my wife. It's not my, the wife character, I changed completely in it. And it, it's kind of autobiographical, but the character that I created is a lot different than me. Yeah, everybody should buy it. <laughs> yes, they should. It's a great combination of stories, and boy, 
when you see who's written these stories, it's going to blow you away. I'm definitely going to get a copy for myself when it's available. The only reason I wrote it was because Cargill forced me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Cargill. <laughs> well, Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. I just wanted to thank you for giving me some of your time. And uh, we'll have to do it again down the line. It's fun. Where are you, in Toronto? I'm in South Carolina. Oh, you're in South Carolina. Yep. yep. Well, so. Gary, thanks again, man. I'm going to let you get out of here, get some dinner, continue with your day, and uh, thank you again. Okay. Well, my, my wife's away today, so that's why this was a good one. So I'm just <laughs> hanging around the house, and I'm a judge at Fantasia, so I've got like 14 movies to watch yet. Well, that so. sounds like a good time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, okay. you take care. Take care, man. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Gary. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, The untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.